Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. Mark 9, 2 through 10. Once again, this is God's holy and inspired word. Mark 9, beginning verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been, or had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. As far as the reading of God's word may bless it to us, let us pray. So we all need a pick-me-up from time to time, but what is your preferred pick-me-up? Well, maybe it's your 2 p.m. coffee or Diet Coke to get you through the siesta time of the afternoon. The weekend could be a good pickup, a Friday night movie, Saturday brunch, or Sunday afternoon nap. Your pick-me-up could be your monthly spa, a stroll on the back nine, or summer vacation. Whatever it is, a pick-me-up is a taste of good news amid the stress of life. For the toughness of reality can chip away at your energy and alertness. Our good spirits and happiness is drained by all the coarse losses of life. And the treadmill of deadlines, exams, and to-do lists keep taking from us and not giving back. And so pick-me-ups replenish and cheer up with small blessings. Well, after all this talk about the cross... The disciples need a pick-me-up. This much death and dying has them dragging their faith. And so as a tonic to boost their spirits, the Lord takes them to the mountains for a scenic overlook into his true identity and destiny. So our Lord and his disciples are somewhere on the road. They were on their way to Caesarea Philippi when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. Then the crowds join them for Jesus to lay out the cost of being a disciple, self-denial and cross-bearing. Well, they're still traveling and six days have passed. This is a kind of random detail, six days from what? We're not sure, but day seven comes after six, which is the ideal number. This readiness readies us for something special, maybe some rest and revitalization. And sure enough, Jesus takes a detour with three hand-picked disciples, Peter, James, and John. Now, the last time Jesus did a special activity with these three, he raised a girl from the dead. This time, though, he climbs a high mountain with them. And no other information is recorded about the what specific mountain this is. And yet, high mountains are one of the favorite places of the Old Testament. 
In fact, our short passage here is loaded with references, allusions, and echoes to the Old Testament. Thus, a high mountain first makes us think of Sinai. Or, for that matter, a tall mountain in the Old Testament was also where God revealed himself at various times in visions of glory. Additionally, as we read in Isaiah 40, ascend a high mountain, herald of good news to Zion. From a lofty peak, Isaiah uh, prophesied that the gospel would be trumpeted. Thus, our taste buds are wedded for a gospel revelation of God, and we don't have to wait too long. Suddenly, Jesus is transfigured before them. His visual appearance and form are transformed. Jesus is changed. His looks morph into from one thing into something else, as if he took polyjuice potion. And yet Mark keeps us on our toes. When you hear someone's appearance changed, you expect details about hair, eye color, and so on. But Mark only speaks about his clothes, which became radiant white. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun, but Mark so respects the second commandment that he won't even go this far. Mark will not picture for us the visible Jesus. Instead, he oogles about his garment, which is white beyond what any bleacher of clothes can do. Now, if you're a novice, white is just white. That is, until you go to the hardware store and try and buy paint for your kitchen, and you learn that there's really about 50 50 different types of white. Well, like a trained interior decorator, Mark says this white is like nothing on earth. It is an unearthly white, a heavenly divine white. Jesus is enshrouded in an uncreated and eternal white, blazing brilliantly. Next, Elijah and Moses show up for a chit-chat with our shining Lord. Now, there's no shortage of ideas of why these two show up. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, maybe because they had a special death or better transports to heaven. They could represent the law and the prophets. They could be two prophetic witnesses to validate the truth of the transfiguration. Or Moses could be the written law, while Elijah is the ultimate prosecutor of the covenant. Though we have to be honest that Mark doesn't make fully explicit why Moses and Elijah, and all these suggestions have validity to them. Nevertheless, Mark does something different. He forwards Elijah over Moses. He literally says, Elijah appeared to them, oh yeah, and with Moses. And for Mark, the figure of Elijah, fulfilled in John the Baptist, looms large as the forerunner of the Lord himself. The Elijah voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord? The priority given to Elijah at least underscores that Jesus is the Lord God. He is the Messiah and God, the divine Christ come in the flesh. Nevertheless, as these three are having a nice talk, Peter wants in the conversation. He interrupts, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. 
Rabbi? Now, this title can mean great one, but it most often has a sense of teacher. Jesus is glowing with the divine light, and all Peter can address him as is teacher. Next, he compliments how good it is for them to be present, which seems a bit self-important. This is like the self, or this is like the best man bragging about himself as he toasts the newlyweds. This day is about Jesus, not you, Peter. Finally, Peter offers to put up three tents for them. Now, we're not sure what Peter means by this. Presumably, the tents would be like monuments of honor, little shrines to venerate Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. In short, Peter wants to preserve the glory of the moment. People can pilgrimage to the trinity of tents, to memorialize this glory. Ironically, though, this urge to build shrines or tabernacles lands Peter firmly with the pagans. In the Old Testament, the prophets regularly condemned the Israelites for putting idolatrous shrines on every high mountain. Now, Peter may have meant this with respect, but Peter's suggestion vectors towards idolatry. It veers towards glory now without the cross, which is the satanic obstacle that he was just rebuked for. And yet, the text is merciful towards Peter. It kindly admits that he didn't know what he was talking about. Peter was talking out of the side of his neck, for they were terrified. They were scared stupid, and so Peter is talking without thinking as well as Peter's crazy talk, is just ignored. Now, typically, it is rude to ignore someone, but when they say something completely off the wall, it can be merciful to ignore it and move on. And this is what Jesus does here. He pretends not to hear Peter because Peter is scared silly. Finally, though, the grand finale descends in the glory cloud, Just as on Sinai, the cloud of God's holy splendor swallows the summit. And the Father's voice bellows from the cloud itself, This is my beloved Son. God the Father confirms that Jesus is God the Son. They are distinct persons, but one God, equal in power and glory. People will often complain, If God is real, let him show himself. Let him just say so. Well, the Father just did. God spoke from heaven, and he affirmed that Jesus Christ is his only begotten Son, God come in the flesh. Our faith is given solid, historical, and factual grounding here, and left without excuse. Indeed, as our faith is impressed, it's good for us to go deeper, to ponder just how much is revealed about our Savior here. For as we pointed out, these few verses are bursting at the seams with Old Testament allusions. So to begin with, this is an advanced course in Christology. Peter rightly confessed that Jesus was the Christ, but the larger public ideas were often confused about the Christ. Was there one Christ or two and so on? Well, Jesus now climbs a lofty peak to clarify. 
His appearance is changed from one form to another. His clothes gleam with a heavenly holy white. Elijah shows up the forerunner of God as the forerunner of God's coming. Moses converses with Jesus just as he did with God in ages past on Sinai. And the voice from the glory cloud says, my son. Thus Christ is God. Jesus is God, the son come in the flesh, fully God and fully man is Jesus the Christ. There were current ideas that thought that the Christ would be extra special, superhuman, but God incarnate was beyond their imaginations. But there's more. This title of God's son was also given to the Davidic king. In the Davidic covenant, the Lord promised, I will be his father and he will be my son. Upon coronation, God declared over the Davidic king, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And so Jesus is the royal heir of David. Furthermore, in Isaiah 42 and 49, the servant of the Lord is called the beloved son, the spirit-anointed servant who would be a light to the nations, a covenant for God's people. This, too, is true of Jesus. Moreover, God tells the disciples to listen to him. So Jesus has the authority an office that demands all our obedience. But this phrase, listen to him, is a line pulled from Deuteronomy 18 about the coming prophet like Moses. The greater than Moses prophet is also fulfilled in Jesus. And to top it all off, his clothes shine heavenly white. White garments symbolize righteousness and pristine holiness. And all of this is true of your Savior, beloved. Jesus is God incarnate, the Davidic king, the Isaiah servant, the Moses prophet, and the righteous one. There are not two or three messiahs, but one messiah who fulfills and does it all, Jesus Christ. This is the Lord and Savior of your confession, your faith, and your love. This is the one in whom you believe, the rock of your refuge. And yet, we're not just learning about the identity of Jesus here, but also his destiny. Moses and Elijah were prophets. This high mountain experience points forward to a loftier peak. Jesus went up the mountain and came down the mountain, an unimpressive looking man. But on the top, he shimmered with the power and splendor of heaven. As he said right before this, the kingdom of God has to come in power. And so Jesus is transfigured to showcase the glory he will earn. Presently, he's in the middle of his humiliation. But there's blessed majesty on the other side of the cross. Thus, Though in in this, it's not too easy to separate his resurrected glory from his second coming glory. The father approbating the son as his, or Jesus as the beloved son, in whom he is well pleased, this matches the resurrection. The resurrection is the vindication and publication that Jesus was the righteous one that death could not hold. 
And yet Jesus glowing whiter than the sun, this is the terrifying beauty having ascended on high and coming back with the clouds of glory. The majesty on display here prophetically showcases both his resurrected glory and his final day splendor. This is the everlasting glory Jesus will earn as the firstborn of the dead, as the author of new creation, as the judge of the living and the dead. For the present, there is much suffering, but the pain will give way to joy. From death, he will fashion eternal life, and from the shame of Golgotha, Jesus will conquer the shores of New Jerusalem. But these prophetic symbols are not just for Christ. The glory in store for him is also for us in him. White garments of righteousness are not merely the resurrected outfit of Jesus, but they're also the heavenly dress that he gives to us. White robes adorn the saints in glory as they stand before the throne in eternal song. Jesus imputes his pure clothes to us in our justification by faith and for our Sabbath rest in our deaths. Besides, Jesus stands here on this lofty summit, not alone, but with his church. Elijah and Moses represent the church triumphant, the glorified saints in heaven who have died and gone to be with the Lord. Peter, James, and John, though, personify the church militant, the sinner saints on earth who fight the spiritual battle between the flesh and the spirit. Indeed, the imperfection, the weak faith, the confused knowledge of us on earth is more than evident in Peter's crazy talk. Peter's offer to preserve and enshrine glory on the mountain was him sliding into that satanic impulse to want glory without suffering, to grab heaven without the cross. And yet our Lord mercifully pats him on the head and lets him stay on the mountain. And so Jesus graciously forgives our struggles with sin and our slowness as he brings us to glory. In fact, Jesus shows the glory he has in store for us in the transfiguration to comfort and empower us presently during our time of cross-bearing self-denial. Thus note that as they come down the mountain, that the things that the disciples cannot wrap their minds around is the resurrection They cannot tell anyone about the transfiguration until the Son of Man is raised from the dead, and the three are passionately curious about this rising from the dead. This is the problem they can't figure out. A glowing Jesus, God speaking from the cloud, a conversation with Moses and Elijah, all those are easy things. But the resurrection, this is the calculus problem that they cannot stop working on. And why is this? Because resurrection presumes death. There is no empty tomb without the cross. And the Son of Man dying is alien logic. It goes against every fiber of their being. 
The point being that until the disciples experience the grace of Christ's resurrection, they cannot understand or accept the cross. And so it is with us. Without the power of the resurrection, we cannot bear the cross. Without the hope of heaven, we can't suffer now. Without the glory of Christ set before us, we will not endure the cross now. In short, Christ's resurrection is our ever-present pick-me-up during our earthly pilgrimage. The transfiguration comforts and empowers our faith to embrace the cross, knowing the bliss Christ has in store for us. This is how hope and our being heavenly-minded strengthens your faith and love amid your present sufferings and bad news. The power of Christ's resurrected life gives us the grace to boast in the cross of Christ and to love him more than our own lives. It is sometimes said that heavenly-mindedness makes you no earthly good, but the transfiguration teaches us the opposite. It's only by being heavenly-minded that we are any good on earth. We can press on in faith. We can renounce our works. We can serve others as better than ourselves. We can let go of this life only by the living hope of Christ's resurrection for us. Indeed, there's one more Old Testament illusion here that drives the point home. There's one other Old Testament passage that clusters together many of the terms here. Going up on a high mountain, being alone on a mountain, the beloved son. And all these make an appearance in Genesis 22. When Abraham took his beloved son Isaac up a mountain, just the two of them. And what was the purpose for this mountain hike? To sacrifice Isaac. But where God provided a ram to save Isaac... The Heavenly Father will take his son Jesus to Golgotha as the Lamb. No substitute will be provided for Jesus because he is our substitute. In this way, the transfiguration shows forth Jesus fulfilling that third Old Testament office, the priest becoming the sacrifice in order to enter his glory, in order to bring us to glory, Jesus first had to love you as the son who became the sacrifice. And having loved you unto death, how much more will Christ love you now by his resurrected life? Thus, beloved, lift up your eyes to heaven. Focus your faith and joy on the resurrection. For this is Christ's tender and potent pick-me-up for you. For the joy set before you as a gift of grace, this is our constant hymn of good news so that we might continue faithfully in Christ amid all the bad news of this wicked and fallen world. Thus praise the Lord for the power of the resurrection which keeps us moving on that upward call of God. Amen. Let's pray.